I'm the morning everybody. pastor here. It's good to be together. As always, but especially this time of the year, right? It's September 8th today. We are gearing up, getting ready for a big and busy fall season. So thanks for being here today. We are nearing the end of our long journey through Matthew. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. But before we do, I want to give you a couple of updates on two things, things to keep in mind, and then one, uh, a review of somewhere where we've been before, all right? So uh, as a church, Discovery supports a, a number of people who are doing good work uh, for God's kingdom here uh, in Davis, uh, around the country, and even around the world. And uh, one of our uh, longest uh, partnerships is with a couple, a family, uh, Stephen and Sam Mockford. And uh, they recently um, uh, got kicked out of the country that they were serving in. And they've uh, come back to California. They've resettled here uh, in the Sacramento area. They work for Crew and are going to continue to serve uh, college students through the ministry of Crew. Um, But a very uh, sudden and kind of out of the blue traumatic moment in their life and ministry in having to kind of pick up and leave. And when they came back here, they came back with basically nothing. The, The clothes that they had, maybe a laptop. Uh, And that was pretty much it. So a number of people have been very generous to them in helping them kind of piece back together their lives, rebuild their lives here in the United States. And we wanted to be a part of that as partners with them in their work. And so what we are going to do as a church, and there will be more uh, details about this forthcoming. They'll be here with us next Sunday to share their story Uh, And you'll get to know them a little bit better if you aren't already familiar with them. Um, But what we are going to do as a church, and this feels like a very Davis thing to do, is we're going to help them get bikes. All right? So over the next couple of weeks, again, more details will will, uh, be available about this. But uh, if you want to be thinking about that, praying about how you might want to partner with that, we're going to take up uh, an offering to try to uh, purchase them some bikes and bike stuff like helmets and locks and, and those sorts of things. But also, if you... Uh, have like this really nice bike that's been sitting in your garage for a while, or if you know uh, of a good deal somewhere around town, please let us know. We would love to um, connect with you and make sure that we can get them a a good set of bikes. So if you have questions about that in in the sort of immediate moment before we get to next week, you can ask me or you can talk to Kayla Keneshoff. She's running slides this morning, and she's going to help run point on this project. So please keep that in mind, a way for us to serve one of our missionary partners. The other thing I wanted to update you guys on is that a couple of weeks ago, we had the opportunity when we were in Matthew chapter 25. Uh, Remember, this is the end of Jesus' big teaching section, last big teaching section in Matthew, and we talked about uh, how there's going to be this moment of separation, right? The sheep and the goats at the end of time. And one of the things that is characteristic of the sheep is the way that they care for what Jesus calls the least of these. And in that uh, gathering, I told you a little bit about this fellow John who wrote us from a prison here in California. Uh, Earlier in the summer, we've struck a relationship with him via letter. And in that gathering, we all wrote notes of encouragement to John. We wrote about 65 notes that we sent off to him. And this week, I got his letter back in response to that. So I wanted to read a part of it with you to hear uh, how he received this and some of the things that it's done in his life. All right? So he writes, Dear Pastor and Family, Our Lord and Father is so awesome. All caps, all bold. I owe so many thanks and sincere appreciation to our Father and all his children in his fellowship at Discovery. I don't know where to start. 
I've never in my life been touched by the Holy Spirit until I received the packet of letters from my new family of Christian brothers and sisters at Discovery. I never knew I could be so moved by God's love and affection through his children. I thank each and every one of you at Discovery for being so kind to me. And check this out. I will send each of you back a note of thanks and appreciation. And then he says this, but please give me a little bit of time. He ends the letter by saying, you have really blessed my life and heart. Please let everyone know I'm so blessed and thankful for their love and kindness. I thank you all for your prayers. Please don't stop. They are working. Matthew 5, 14 through 16, you are my family and my light. Your brother in Christ, John Green. Well done, guys. Uh, If you would like to... um, continue writing him, uh, come talk to me and I can give you the instructions for sending him letters and I'm sure uh, he would love to have you know, more of that kind of individual uh, connection as well if you're interested in continuing uh, that with him. All right, let's pray and then we'll uh, get into one of our final conversations in Matthew. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are, uh, again, as we've said this morning, grateful for what you are doing in and through Discovery and that we get to participate in it with you. Thank you for John and uh, his courage to reach out to this church in Davis and, and just to see what would happen and for the relationship that is growing there. We have no idea where this is going, God, but would you help us to be faithful to loving him well and would you make your grace and mercy new to him every day. Father, we pray for the Mockfords, and in particular, God, we pray for their hearts, just the, the sudden shift and transition in their life and ministry, what that has done to their family. May they have a space to mourn that and grieve that and to heal from, uh, from this move and then to be ready for what uh, lies ahead in the next thing that you have for them. Help us to be a blessing to them in our generosity. Um, and continue to strengthen that relationship uh, between us. And now, God, as we turn our attention to Scripture, would you uh, ready us for uh, what do you want to say to us today? We believe that you want to speak to us and to challenge us and to encourage us. And so may we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear that this morning. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. All right, let's start here. This is a picture of me in the backyard of my parents' house that I grew up in in Salinas. Feel free to to have a little giggle about that. Um, There it is. (laughs) As you can see, uh, the the backyard of this house uh, for a long time as a kid was very undeveloped. I've told the story about the home that I grew up in before. Uh, Just a quick recap. This house was built by some friends of uh, of our family um, and 70 guys showed up on a Saturday morning to frame and roof the whole house in one day, and then a whole bunch of other people were involved in finishing the thing off. But as you can tell, the backyard, not a huge priority, at least for the first several years. And so this was awesome for me a- a- as a boy with a really big imagination, all kinds of adventures in the vast wilderness of my parents' backyard. And around the time I would guess that this picture was taken, I had begun uh, to search for buried treasure. I was digging holes in the backyard, and I found that there was, in fact, treasure back there in the form of golf balls. All right? (laughs) At some point when that was ranch land, I guess some guy just liked to go hit balls out there. But there were about a dozen or so that I had found. 
at a particular moment. And uh, around that time, my dad and I went to CVS or one of those kinds of stores. And we're walking up and down the aisles. Again, I have no idea what we were doing there, but I, I definitely remember what happened next. We're going down the toothpaste aisle, and I see this, like, bucket of floss. And on top of this bucket of floss, there's a, a, a box of golf balls that had been broken and opened. And in my seven, eight-year-old brain, I, I remember thinking, that doesn't belong there. So I grabbed one of the balls and put it into my pocket. And then next thing I know, we're in the car and we go home. So a couple of days later, I'm sitting in the living room. I have my collection of golf balls out. There's 12 old faded balls that have been dug out of the backyard, and there's one shiny brand new ball. And my dad passes by, and he goes, where did that one come from? And in that moment, like a lightning bolt, it occurred to me that, oh, my goodness, I think I stole this. It had never occurred to me until right then. And so I think I said something pretty lame about like, oh, I found it at CVS, you know, in the gutter outside the store. And uh, my dad kind of looked at me like, I'm pretty sure that's not how that went. But he was busy and moved on. And and I, you know, I think we just sort of forgot about it after that. Now, I'd love to tell you that I had this moment, again, it dawned on me, oh, I've stolen this golf ball, that I had this moment then of like repentance and confession, and we go back to CVS, and I give back the golf ball, and there's this great like, oh, reconciliation thing, right? That is not what happened. Here's what I did. <clears throat> I took this ball into the backyard, and a child psychologist, I'm sure, would have a field day with this, but I, I dug a hole, and I buried that ball in the backyard, And I'm pretty sure that it is still there to this very day. (laughs) Now, we begin here because because guilt, whether we realize it or not, whether we can name it in our life or not, guilt has a profound influence on us. It it impacts uh, how we uh, act, how we react to different situations, how we think. And we will go to crazy lengths to try to deal with it, right? to bury it, or to hide it, or to get rid of it. Guilt can be paralyzing, and in my experience, many of us carry around great burdens of guilt that we've never dealt with before, or at least we've never dealt with it in any kind of healthy way. Now, the good news of Jesus, part of the good news of Jesus is that there is freedom from the burden of our guilt, and we're going to see that in a very dramatic way this morning. So if you have a Bible, open with me to Matthew chapter 26, and if you would like a Bible, raise your hand and uh, one of our ushers will come around and make sure you have one of those. We, we love being able to share the physical copies of the Bible with you. Matthew chapter 26, we begin in verse 57. And I'm going to read a little bit of this first scene, and then we'll talk about it. We're going to look at two different scenes this morning. The first one begins like this. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter, and don't forget about Peter. Keep him in the back of your mind. Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Now we're going to hit pause there for just a minute. 
Let's remember where we are here in this journey, all right? We've been in Matthew for a long time. This is the seventh and final movement of the book. And so far in this final movement, we've seen Jesus share a meal with his disciples, the last meal that they would eat together before he goes to the cross. And then after that meal, they head out into this garden to pray. And that's where we were last Sunday with Jesus in the garden, Jesus facing head on the agony of the death and punishment that he is about to take on in our place. And it's this very heavy, weighty moment of Jesus uh, agonizing over what is about to happen to him. And yet at the same time, this amazing picture of the gospel, right? The good news that Jesus willingly laid his life down for us. That we might be free from our sin, from death, from guilt. Now here at this point in the story, Jesus has been turned in to the authorities by Judas, betrayed by Judas, and Jesus brought in before the religious leadership, the elite of the religious leadership for this trial. So this first scene that we're looking at, we're going to call the downfall of Jesus. Now according to Webster, a downfall is a loss of power, prosperity, or status. And when we're looking at the downfall of Jesus, we are looking at one of the most uh, horrific, tragic ironies of history. And this is actually one of, uh, one of Matthew's big themes, is the injustice of Jesus' trial and crucifixion. Verse 59 tells us that right from the very beginning, this trial is corrupt. Everyone is looking, not just for evidence, right, but for false evidence. And, and the remarkable thing is they can't even find any, despite their best efforts. But finally, verse 60, an accusation is put forward. Two different people come forward and say, this guy claimed to be able to destroy the temple and then rebuild it in three days. So here, this is an especially big win for the, the chief priests because according to the law, they needed not just an accusation, but they needed two witnesses of the accusation for uh, there to be an accusal uh, put down. So we have two people essentially accusing Jesus of what today we might call terrorism, right? Blowing up a building, destroying this big public building. And then also the claim to rebuild it in three days. Even in the 21st century, we know that nothing uh, with our technology can get built that fast, especially here in Davis. Still waiting for El Patio to open. Um. <laughs> But jokes aside, this is a very interesting thing that Matthew does here with this false accusation that is brought forward. Let's take a look at this for a minute. Now, Jesus does in fact make this claim, but he does not make this claim in Matthew. It happens in the Gospel of John fairly early on in the story as John tells it. John chapter 2, Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Jesus, you know that what Jesus is talking about here is not really the temple, but about him. Matthew, however, never uses this language. In fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all say it the same way. Matthew 24, Jesus speaking to his disciples points at the temple and some of the other large buildings around it and says, do you see all these things? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And Jesus is making a prophecy here about something that will in fact happen. 30 to 40 years after his death and resurrection, the Romans come and destroy the temple. 
So the way that Matthew tells the story, this false evidence brought against Jesus is, is very false. He hasn't even said this according to Matthew. This is kind of like that record scratch moment of like, wait, where did they come up with this? Destroy the temple and build it again in three days. Matthew wants us to see that nothing about this trial is legit. And he keeps the focus on the injustice of this to help us understand something really important about the death of Jesus. And I think one way to get at this truth, the importance of what Matthew's trying to say, is to ask the question, who's responsible for this? Who's responsible for the death of Jesus? Who killed Jesus? Was it Judas who betrayed him? Was it Peter for not taking more of a stand? Was it all the other disciples who ran away and hid during this time? Is it these two false witnesses? Is it the religious leaders who, who are overseeing this sham of a trial? <clears throat> Is it the mob mentality of the Passover crowd? And we'll see that more next week. Is it the corrupt machinery of the Roman Empire? Is it you and me? Is it all of humanity? Is this the, the outcome of our sin and rebellion against the way that God intended his good creation to function? Now, the answer that Matthew points us towards is all those things. All of these things. He wants us to see that there is both an individual and a systematic reality to sin. Sin infects everything. Individuals, families, communities, institutions, governments, culture, the whole human project from Genesis chapter 3, the moment in the story where sin enters the picture, the whole human project has been geared towards killing off God. And that project is coming to its culmination here in Matthew 26 and 27. Again, the horrible uh, irony of this moment. Human beings standing in judgment over and against the creator of the universe. Now, Jesus' response to all of this is also quite fascinating. For most of the trial, he is silent. He doesn't say anything. His silence in the face of this injustice calls to mind some of the great nonviolent protests of history, right? The sit-ins of the civil rights movement or Gandhi's hunger strikes. There's great power in passively resisting injustice. Jesus' silence makes a mockery of all of the untrue words that are being spoken during this trial. But he's not silent the whole time. There is a moment where Jesus does speak, and when he speaks, he does not hold back at all. The high priest is getting exasperated with him for just standing there, and he stands up and says, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Like, just let's cut to the chase and get right to the point here. And look at how Jesus responds. He says, you have said so. And then he says this kind of strange thing. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now for us, that might be uh, like, what is he talking about? Kind of thing. He doesn't answer the question directly with a yes or a no. However, the audience to which he is speaking would have known exactly what he was talking about. 
His answer is a mashup of two Old Testament passages that were very much connected to promises about the Messiah. One of them from Psalm 110. This is where the, the right hand language comes from. The other one from Daniel chapter 7. There before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven with authority and glory and sovereign power. And Jesus has used that title, Son of Man, many, many times throughout Matthew to refer to himself. So Jesus here really poking the bear. He, he doesn't answer the question directly, but again, makes it very clear to them, I am the Messiah. And the end of this story is that I am victorious. No matter how ridiculous this trial gets, the end of the story is that I am victorious. This results in the charge of blasphemy, which according to Leviticus 24 is punishable by death. The horrible, tragic irony of this moment. The religious leadership using their earthly power to kill the Son of God, condemn the Son of God to death. And then Jesus, who has all the power in the universe, allows himself to be killed. The scene ends with them mocking him, insulting him, hitting him, spitting on him. And in doing so, fulfill another messianic prophecy, this time from Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was punished. Now, a number of things stand out from that. <clears throat> I want us, though, to see that little question. Who of his generation protested? This leads us to our second scene and the downfall of Peter. So continuing on in Matthew, we're now in verse 69. Peter was sitting out in a courtyard and a servant uh, girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about. Then he went out into the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. And he denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, No, surely you were one of them. Your accent gives you away. This time, Peter calls down curses and he swears to them, I don't know the man. And then immediately a rooster crows. And Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he goes outside and he weeps bitterly. Now we need to, I think, sit with the weight of this moment here for a little bit. For those of you who are familiar with the Jesus story and Peter's role in that story, there could be a tendency here to want to skip right past this or to fast forward through this moment because we know that the story ends well for Peter, right? This was just a momentary blip and it all ends up fine. But I want us to assume for just a minute that we don't know how this story ends. Matthew, up to this point, has shown Peter to be a very prominent disciple. He's mentioned by name more than anyone else in the book. 
And Matthew's the only one to record the particular scene where Jesus calls Peter the rock on which the church would be built. Peter plays a very important role in this book. But after this moment, he is not mentioned by name again in the book of Matthew. Just kind of drops out of the story. Now, Jesus had told Peter this was going to happen, and sure enough, it does happen. And I want us to pay very careful attention to the progression that Peter moves through here. The first time Peter's recognized what? He simply denies it, right? I don't know, I don't know that guy. I don't know what you're talking about. Second time, though, Peter adds an oath. I swear to God, I swear on the Bible, I swear on my mother's grave, I don't know this man. And then that third and final time, Peter calls down a curse. Now, this is maybe something that is not familiar to us. This is not Peter letting an F-bomb slip or something like that. This is a radical and total disconnection, disassociation with Jesus. This is Peter saying he would rather go to hell than be associated with Jesus. A radical and total disconnection. Now this scene, it reminds me a little bit of Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the company of mockers. There's a systemic nature to sin. There's an individual nature to sin. There's also a progressive nature to sin, to breaking right relationship with God and with each other. There is a hole that we dig that can get deeper and deeper. Walk, stand, sit, deny Oaths, curse. The truth here for us, the challenge here for us is to pay attention. Be watchful of the progression of your life. Be mindful of where your actions are taking you. Because what starts out small, it can really escalate on us. We leave Peter absolutely brokenhearted, right? The, the rooster crows, it dawns on him what has happened. He goes outside, and the text says he weeps bitterly. The Greek there is the ugly cry, right? Just snot the whole nine yards. He is brokenhearted. Rejected his friend, rejected the king. And again, don't fast forward the story too quickly. Peter has to sit with this. For some time, he, he has to watch the end of the trial, watch Jesus crucified, watch them take his body off for burial. And then he had to face the other disciples knowing how much he'd blown it. And believing, I think, to his core, there's no coming back from this one. I've made some mistakes. I've blown it in some different ways. I've opened my mouth and said some dumb stuff, but there's no coming back from this one. And that's where we leave Peter in the book of Matthew. Now, the good news of Peter's story and the good news for us is that it doesn't end there. John's gospel gives us a lot more to work with when it comes to Peter's story. So if you still have your Bibles open, flip over to John Chapter 21, as you're finding that, in John chapter 18 is where we see the betrayal scene. And uh, John tells us, somewhat randomly, that 
uh, Peter is hanging out around a charcoal fire because it's cold that night. And that's where he has this interaction with these servants. That might seem like kind of a random fact, but John there is planting a seed of a thought that will become important a little bit later on. So now John chapter 21, this is the end of the story as John tells it. And he begins by letting us know that Peter has gone back to fishing. And in just a couple of verses, he's also going to tell us that, that Jesus, when he shows up in this scene, this is the third time that he's appeared to the disciples. And that's really fascinating, okay? Jesus has died. He's come back from the dead. He's appeared twice to the disciples. And still Peter goes back to fishing. This is where his story with Jesus began, right? Jesus shows up and tells him, leave your boats, leave your nets, come and follow me. I will make you fishers of people. But here, Peter, in his guilt and his grief, he's gone back. He's gone back to the boat. He's gone back to fishing which is a very classic way that we deal with our guilt. We fall right back into these old familiar patterns and places, things that we thought we had left behind. Now part of this, I think, is the shock that the disciples are going through. Just the events of the week were probably so overwhelming to them. Even though Jesus explained how it was going to go down, they're having a hard time processing all of that. But again, also human nature, right, to go back to return to the familiar instead of pressing into the unknown. We all do this. We go back to our boats. We go back to our nets. Now Jesus shows up while they're out there fishing. They haven't been catching anything. They don't recognize him at first and he gives them instructions. And then they end up catching 153 fish. John, all about the random details, okay? <laughs> as far as I know, there's no deep significance to 153 but it's at that moment, as they're catching these fish, they realize, oh, that's Jesus on the shore. And what does Peter do? He leaps into the lake. This is very Peter. Leaps into the lake and swims to shore where Jesus, we're told, has built a charcoal fire. So here we have Peter, once again, leaping out of a boat to be closer to Jesus. And now again, around a charcoal fire, but this time in the presence of Jesus. Now look at how Jesus is with Peter in this moment. Verse 15 of, of John chapter 21. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, By the way, always eat breakfast before having a hard conversation with someone. That's the principle there. <laughs> when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? Do you think he's realizing what's going on? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus one more time says, feed my sheep. This scene is so interesting to me because, again, Jesus has died. He's come back from the dead. He's made two appearances before this to the disciples. 
And of course, his death and resurrection, all about what? All about forgiving Peter for his sin and relieving him of his guilt. And yet Peter still needs this personal interaction, right? He still needs to sit around a charcoal fire with Jesus and share this meal and have Jesus three times gently remind him, Peter, this is who you are. And this is why you are here. This is how Peter can later on write, as you come to him, the living stone, he's speaking of Jesus, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Never be put to shame. Peter writing a letter of encouragement to a church, but he's also telling his story, right? Jesus, rejected by humans, but chosen by God. Building you into a spiritual house. The one who trusts in Jesus will never be put to shame. This is the beautiful good news of Jesus. That no matter what you have done, there is room around the fire for you. There is forgiveness and freedom from our burdens of guilt. There is restoration as Jesus calls us back to our true identity and to our true purpose. And thanks be to God for this grace, right? For this good gift. Now to close, I want us to do a little bit of a thought experiment. A question that Christians like to ask each other is this question, when did you become a Christian, right? We love that moment of, of sort of, I'm in. The thought experiment for us is this, at what point does Peter become a Christian? Was it when Jesus invited him to fish for people? Was it when Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law? Was it when Jesus gave a hard teaching and a bunch of people bailed, but Peter is the one who says, where else am I going to go? Was it when Peter gets out of the boat and walks on water? Was it when Peter names Jesus as Messiah? Was it when Jesus gives Peter the keys to the kingdom? Was it when Peter allows Jesus to wash his feet? Was it this moment of restoration that we've just looked at here in John 21? Was it after Jesus leaves and Peter is filled by the Holy Spirit and he becomes this crazy, bold preacher? Or is it later on in the book of Acts when, when Peter has a vision and then an encounter with a guy named Cornelius and, and Peter begins to understand just how big the kingdom really is. What's the moment for Peter? Don't forget that between all of those moments, Peter freaks out. He nearly drowns. He gets called Satan by Jesus. He fights and disagrees with the other disciples. He chops off a guy's ear. And all of this in addition to the betrayal that we see today. What's the moment for Peter? I think this question of when is actually a faulty question. I think it demonstrates our overemphasis on a conversion moment instead of the conversion process. Now, moments are, are important and they are worthy of celebration, but our lives 
unfold as a series of moments, right? Our lives unfold as a process. Pastor Brian Loritz writes, sin makes complicated messes out of all of us. Even by our own standards, we're not as moral as we'd like to think we are. Peter's disowning should give us pause before we say what we will and won't do. We're all complicated messes in need of daily grace. Complicated messes in need of daily grace. This is why the conversion process, why formation is so important. And I think one of the reasons we get so much about Peter is to remind us that we're in a process. Now, having said all of that, I do think there's one really significant moment in Peter's life that we haven't mentioned yet. And it actually comes here still in John chapter 21, right after this restoration scene. Jesus and Peter are back in right relationship, and Jesus continues to, to speak into Peter, calling him into his destiny. Only the more that, that Jesus talks about it, the less excited Peter becomes uh, about this destiny that Jesus is calling him to. Look at what Jesus says. Truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. By the way... That is a great definition of maturity, being led where you do not want to go. Now, John goes on to tell us that Jesus says all of this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then Jesus one more time says, follow me. Peter's hearing all of this, realizes what it means. And in fact, uh, we know from church history that Peter does die by crucifixion. Peter's hearing all this, it's ominous and disturbing. He looks around, he points at John, and he's like, what about that guy? Let's talk about that guy's gruesome death for a minute. Look at, how, look at what Jesus says to him in response. If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. I think this is one of the most important things that Jesus says in all of Scripture, and we don't talk about it enough. What is it to you? You must follow me. Now, there are aspects of following Jesus that are common to us all. For example, we all have to work out what it means to love God and to love people, but there is only one you. And there is only one process for you. There's only one process for Peter, only one process for Steve. And so much of our guilt and shame come from comparison. I have so much worse than that guy. I've done so many things, uh, you know, that, that compared to them, I'm a terrible person. They're a good person. They've got it all together. I'm a mess. Look at their kids. Oh, look at my family. They have a better job. She's more famous. Whatever it is, we look at other people. We pile the guilt and the shame on. And and let me just confess, this is so true of me as a pastor. Sometimes I I look at other people and I'm like, that guy got a book deal? She has 10,000 followers on social media? And Jesus says, Steve, what is it to you? You must follow me. 
What is it to you? You must follow me. If you are struggling with guilt or with shame or with this comparison game, these tapes that play in our heads, the first move is to accept the forgiveness and restoration available to us through Jesus' death and resurrection. It begins there. But then the next move is to submit to the process that Jesus has just for you. What is it to you? Where are you struggling with comparison, with guilt, with shame? I'm not, the, I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. I'm not whatever. And where is Jesus saying, what is it to you? You must follow me. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the good news That because of what Jesus has done, laying his life down in our place on that cross. Taking on all of that and then overcoming it through his resurrection. Thank you, God, for the freedom we have from guilt, for the forgiveness of our sins, for the restoration to right relationship with you and with each other that is available because of what Jesus has done for us. And God, even with that truth, we still continue to struggle with comparison, with uh, carrying around guilt and shame for things that have been done to us or things that we have done. Father, I pray this morning for freedom from those things, that we would let those things go, that we would hear the words that you spoke to Peter being spoken to us. What is it to you? You must follow me. Whatever... Uh, whatever is holding us back from accepting that invitation to follow you, God, may we leave it here this morning and step into the process that you have for us, building us into that spiritual house that Peter talks about later on in his life. And God, thank you for the good news that those who trust in you will never be put to shame. We pray all of this this morning out of deep, deep gratitude for what you've done for us through Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.